If you would, please open your Bibles and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, please. If you're now wondering why we are looking at Chronicles, I understand and I appreciate the question. If I were going to get from from anywhere in the world, that's not Jerusalem, that is, to the book of Chronicles, that's not a bad question, but perhaps I would like to suggest to you that um, that, that question itself, um, although it's the reason that I would want to look at this, um, at this text, also suggests something uh, about our, our misunderstandings and our approach um, to this book, as interesting as it is. This is the book, after all, that comes after uh, 1 Kings, and uh, most of us in our, in our Bible reading, we might be a little bit frustrated with the, the redundancy as we're coming into Chronicles, if we're reading right through. This is the book that, that, that kind of has an uh, over-occupation with, with numbers, uh, we might think, and so then we're tempted all the more to skip over some things. We're, of course, we're not in Jerusalem. We're not, uh, we're not as far as I can tell, uh, descendants of, of David, and it might have a little, less, a little less appeal to us or interest in us naturally. We might feel like, like, I, like we've taken a wrong turn and found ourselves in a neighborhood that we don't belong. Uh, or maybe like sometimes when I walk into a department store from the, from the parking lot and find myself in a department that I should not be in <laughs> and, uh, and, and find that that's awkward. But I want to also suggest that like we may find ourselves in a neighborhood that is unsafe and we feel uncomfortable with the, the loss of security that we feel, it might also be that we feel insecure un- inappropriately, that it suggests more that we ourselves are, are, have some biases and misunderstandings about the neighborhood and what we see than, uh, than we ought to have. And I would suggest the same here. Because we belong in First Corinthians, First Chronicles, chapter sixteen, we happen to be mentioned in this. This this passage here in the middle of the of the chapter mentions the peoples, that is, the nations, the Gentiles are mentioned here a few times. In fact, the whole earth is mentioned. So, do we have anything to do with this chapter and what's happening in it? Absolutely, we do. And so, whether or not we feel like we belong, we ought to, and we ought to understand that. It may strike us as odd that the nations would be mentioned here because what is happening in this chapter is that the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant is being moved into Jerusalem for the first time, is moved into a tent on the Temple Mount, and then as a celebration, there's these psalms that are sung that we'll read in a second. They join in worship and they celebrate what has happened, and that's where the peoples of the world are mentioned in this passage. But we are not Israelites, and we may not see the connection between moving the ark a couple miles and setting it on the mountain and then celebrating and what that has to do with us. It might be odd because we have a different understanding of what worship ought to do. It might strike us as as odd, perhaps, because we think that worship, we have a tendency to think that worship doesn't have anything to do with what God has done and what he is doing. Likewise, we may be succumbed to the temptation even a little bit to think that worship is something that happens to us, that, that we come and what makes worship as a church good is, is the way that we feel leaving. It's something that we, we come and it happens to us and we either feel good or, or not so much. We are all used to the idea that, or the, the experience rather, that, um, that 
coming here again and again and gathering with the Lord's people is much victim to going through the motions and it becomes as something that going through the mo- like going through the motions and a habit. It becomes something that loses meaning to us. I want to say that this chapter then gives us an example of what meaningful worship looks like and what it what it means to us. This is an example then of meaningful worship in the sense that it helps us to understand that worship ought to be something in which we come, bringing something about what God has doing in our life, and then we bring that before Him, that drives our worship, and that the worship that we give an offer to God as we hear from him that ought to propel us out, ought to push us out. It ought to affect us. It ought to change us. That what we're doing in this place as a church has a lot to do with what's happening outside of these walls, elsewhere, in our life and in the lives of those people that do not yet know him. This chapter is working through that idea, I think, in something of a progression from the past to the present to the future. So this is the way that we're going to, to do that even, even rather quickly. So we're going to consider what God has done and what that, what that does with our worship, what he is doing, how that drives our worship, and then the way in which it pushes us out, what he will do, and what he is doing and what that means for us and what we ought to do in, future, in the future. In particular, this has to do with this, the future, thoughts about the future are, have to do with this passage about his judgment that's coming up, and someday will include and involve everybody that he has made, and that will be the focus that we have this evening. Again, this chapter is about a response to the movement of the ark onto the Temple Mount, and then a celebration that they give, that they offer. The first few verses then talk about the setting up of the ark and then the, the, the bookend, if you will, at the end of the chapter then talks about the, the aftermath and David goes home and, and they, he blesses his family. But we're going to read here the middle. I'll begin reading in verse 8 and we'll read this part that's set aside as, a, as Psalms. So I'll read verses 8 through 36. Please follow with me. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant. Children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord. Our God, his judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number, of little account and sojourners in it, Wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. 
Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, Save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to our whole, your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. So our aim here is to strengthen our resolve to make worship meaningful. I'm going to say that we make worship meaningful because of what God has done, is doing, and what he will do. And there's three ways that we make worship meaningful to us. First, we respond to where we were. Second, it ought to pull our eyes toward him. And third, it ought to push us forward. So it ought to respond to where we were. In this passage, in, this, in these psalms, we have this looking back at the journey that, Jerusalem, that, uh, that the, the saints have taken towards Jerusalem. Verses 16 through 18 then refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it's referring to the promises that have been made to them. And then they recall then the thousand years. It's almost a thousand years between the, promises, the giving of these promises and David's coming onto the scene and what they're celebrating at that point. It means in, this, in that big time frame, God has been faithful to do what he promised. They talk about how, or they're celebrating the fact that they were once underdogs. They were once little of little account, and they were dependent upon the nations that surrounded them. They were much bigger and stronger than they were. They could have easily overwhelmed them in human, in human terms if it wasn't for God's protection, if it wasn't for his faithfulness. So God prevented them from being overwhelmed by their enemies, the people that would otherwise seek to take advantage of them, even though they were refugees amongst the nations, amongst their, their hosts in the land. They were wandering, it says. They had to look for others for help in verse, verses 20 through 22. And when some tried to take advantage of them, they answered to God, then who, who then kept his promise by saying, touch not my anointed ones, he says in verse 22. So the sum of this is a focus on God's faithfulness, that he is doing what he promised to do. And the emphasis, of course, is on what he has done. And so they're taking the time to think about this. And this is the point for us to make worship meaningful, we ought to, from time to time, consider what God has done in our life. We ought to look back. I, this is something that needs to happen deliberately because we, we don't often do this. The, 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 that is, the, when we're on a road trip and we're going somewhere, the question that's coming from the back of the car um, is, where are we, when are we going to get there, right? The focus is, is ahead. And the question is not, are we 100 miles down the road yet? Are we 200 miles away from where we started? That's not what we're thinking about. We're thinking about getting there. We're thinking about moving forward. As such it is, as it is in our life, we need to, from time to time, to think about the road that has been covered in the past. 
And then in that road and the things that have happened in our rearview mirror, then what has God done in that? We find that we, we have these moments in life where we look back and we see, we see that much has changed, don't we? As a friend is recently remarking, he's, he's going, he went down to visit his, his first grandchild for the first time. And, and it's something to rejoice in. But then he's talking about how he's looking at this family now, his son and daughter-in-law, and realizing that they're adults, they're a family. They've, um, they have been a family since they were married, but you get the idea that, that, that time has passed. And in that time, God has been extremely gracious that these are, these are believers, that God has enabled them to persevere in the faith. And not only has he enabled them to persevere in the faith, he's given them the blessing of, of becoming parents. And then, my friend, uh, becoming a grandparent in this, in this case. That, Time passes, and then we look back, and then we see, my, look at what God has done. And then when we look at those things, then what do we do? We should not be silent. And this, this passage makes it all the way clear, all the more clear, in all of these commands. And I, I hope that you would pick up on this, that these commands are commands that it's not just a poetic expression. We're commanded to respond okay? These are imperatives. These are things that are telling us, okay, so you see that God has done these things, so then call upon his name. Sing, sing. Glory in his holy name. Seek the Lord. Remember these things. Sing, and verses 23 through 24, sing, tell, declare, ascribe, ascribe, worship. These are all commands that are commanding us not only to think about what God has done, but then to respond in thanksgiving and to respond in praise. To be silent, of course, would be would be unbelieving to presume upon his grace and upon his faithfulness and upon his kindness in, his, in our life that we are drinking in each and every day. This is like much of what the unbelievers do throughout the text of Scripture. The rich fool, the prodigal son, until he repents, they're taking in the graces of their father, their earthly father, which of course is pointing to their heavenly father. We see his faithfulness. Take a moment to ascribe it to him, to tell him about it, to acknowledge who it is that allows us to breathe, who it is that holds us fast to him. We are here because of his grace. And God does not deserve our silence in response. One way to make our worship here meaningful to us is to make it a response to what he has done. Second way to make it meaningful is to look at what he is doing, that we may put what he is doing now in perspective to who he is. So this text talks about how, these Psalms talk about how there is nothing like him. There is no God like our God. All the other gods are worthless idols. And so the people ought to seek out the one God, the only God that has made the heavens and the earth, verse 26. There's only one God that has made the earth and one God that deserves worship because there's nothing else like him. Verse 14, his judgments are in all the earth. 
They are there not only in every place, but they exist for thousands of generations. So they exist everywhere that he has created, and they will exist for thousands of generations. They will not cease. So for everywhere they exist and for all time they are there. The world is established. What he has made is established, and it will not be moved, verse 30. It means that he rules in everywhere that he is and everywhere that he has created. He reigns, verse 31. So for us that are Americans now, we need to, we need to, put, on, um, we need to put on different spectacles when we hear these things, when we hear uh, about God's reign in all the earth and everywhere that he is. We need to think about this slightly differently than the typical American because, because we as typical Americans have enough of a Clint Eastwood mindset or Chuck Norris, if you will. There's enough of, of, of that mindset in us that rebukes or bristles at the idea that there is someone that is rightfully reigning over us, that is absolutely sovereign over everything that is happening. This is different here than it is throughout almost anywhere in the world. God reigns. He has a right to say what is his and what is not and what ought to be in every part of our life. Let that settle in and let us be okay with it as it suggests. Let us see that he reigns and let us rejoice because he's good. Let us be okay with the fact that there is no square inch that he is not in control where he does not have a right to say, this is mine and this is the way it ought to be. That is wonderful. There is in this passage a response to God's reign that is both full of joy, a call to rejoice, and also one that is full of fear. Rightfully so, right? Uh, Again, it's hard for us to recognize what it's talking about because we don't have anything to really compare it to. There are people today that are fear, they're in fear for their lives about an evil empire coming in or to take what they possess and to take away their rights. They're afraid of the change that that would bring. They're afraid of their own life being taken. And yet at the same time, that fear is mixed in many cases with boldness. And you can see that in the news. The kind of response to the news that God reigns to us ought to be a kind of sober reverence and joy. It's wonderful news. It should make us tremble. We are to rejoice and at the same time we're to shake before him and so should all the earth, these verses say. So with our God, we're to look upon him and to recognize how great he is and how marvelous he is. We're to, be, we're to tremble before him in reverence, but we're to run to him and not run away. He does wondrous works, as he says. His steadfast love endures forever, verse 34 says. And so in verse 35, it says, so knowing who you are, knowing the fact that you reign, and knowing the wickedness that we face here, and that not everybody is on your side, then verse 35 concludes by saying, save us, rescue us from those people that are not on your side, so that we may ultimately give thanks to you. So we know this, but sometimes in our life, the problems that we're facing in our life then are so gargantuan in our eyes that everything else shrinks down to the size of our grievances. It shrinks down to the size of our problems, and all we can see are the things that trouble us. 
the things that we're worried about, the things that we're fearful of in our life. The antidote for this is to look at a God that is so much bigger. Recognize that he is in charge of all these things. And to put that problem, as big as it may be, and put that up against the size, the greatness of our God. To tremble before him and to call upon him for his help and for his care. Recognize that regardless of how much things in your life may be changing and have changed in the past couple years, they are changing under the thumb of a good and sovereign and righteous God. And he has not lost sight of that. One way to make worship meaningful is to make it a response to where we have been and to see what he has done and to give thanks and praise to him The second way to make our worship meaningful is to put what's happening in our life now in perspective to who he is and has always been. And the third then pushes us out into the future, out beyond these walls. It puts into perspective then the things that have happened in the past, lest we think that by looking back at the good things that have happened, looking back at the blessings that God has given us in the past is something that we ought to envy or ought to desire to go back towards. I, I think of... Perhaps the things that have happened in our past that God has truly given us as blessings. Things that we can thank him for. We're seeing them in our past in the rearview mirror, like I said, and we're grateful to God for them, but we shouldn't desire to go back to them or just hold on to them so tightly that we cannot move forward, is the point, is the idea that that I'm getting at. This church is evidence of God's blessings in the past, his current blessings upon, upon us. Our relationship is evidence of those blessings. Our time in Tanzania has been an incredible blessing that's now in our rearview mirror. At least it's changing drastically. And we're reminded in a couple different ways in Scripture that we shouldn't desire just to go back to them wishing that the days of the past ought to be what we have now. Ecclesiastes tells us, We shouldn't ask, or it's foolishness to ask, why were the former days better than these? As if it were possible to desire them or to be jealous of them and to hold on to them and make them an idol. We shouldn't. We should move forward in trust that the good and sovereign God that has given us those things will be able to be good and sovereign in the days ahead, despite the unknown. So worship ought to push us forward. And the thing that does it, the truth that does that in this case, is the fact that he's coming in judgment that all the things that he is doing then are working towards a point in the future in which he rights wrongs, in which he establishes rule and surety over everything, and where his enemies are put down. So did you notice the jump then that he makes, that we've been working our way towards, where he, he jumps in, in verse 23 from talking about Abraham, the patriarchs, and the faithfulness there, and then he, he jumps then to all the earth all of a sudden. His scope just went, went worldwide. And he talks about the implications for, for what's happening in all the earth. And he tells us that we ought to declare his glory among all the nations, for there is no God that is like him, and he is to be feared above all the gods. And so, we are to go out to all the people and say that not only is this a God that is faithful to Israel, but he's a God that deserves to be worshipped by everything that he has made. And so, verse 26, let 
The Lord made the heavens, so the heavens and the earth should worship him. The families of the people, verse 28, all the people then, all the heavens, all the earth, all the nations, verse 31, should worship him. The sea, the field, and everything that is in them, verse 32, and the trees, the forests, and everything that is in them ought to worship him. This idea that because God has made, because he is faithful, because his judgments are evident everywhere is something that from time to time we get a glimpse that people get this idea. Even pagan kings in scripture recognize this. So in the book of Daniel, you have some of those pagan kings that Daniel lived in with, served. Some of them get it and a few do not. But you have, for instance, you have, for instance, one that says that after, after, after a confrontation with, with God, he says that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is a pagan king that recognizes this. Uh, it's in our Bible, despite the people that ought to know him better. <laughs> this idea that the fact that God is so good and he's so great that this news isn't something that should be kept to us. Pagan kings, Nebuchadnezzar, he got it. <laughs> At least in that moment, he did. And throughout the scripture, those many have, have recognized this and the Psalms then reiterate this idea that, that God is so good and he's so great that, he ought to be, that this news ought to be taken beyond the walls and it would be a crime to keep it to ourselves. As a kind of a frivolous illustration, I think of a, um, a case that came before the, the, uh, the, the Supreme Court of this country last year that involved, these, um, involved the chocolate companies. Uh, the, the case had to do with, with slave labor in the places where the chocolate, the cacao, is being sourced. And the question is whether or not the companies that are in the U.S. are liable for the slave treatment in, in those foreign places. Which, so at any rate, those cases, what is actually happening is horrible. What I want to talk about just briefly is the fact that, that in this country then to drum up support against the chocolate companies, then many of the media then and pointed out the fact that these people who are working to, to bring about our, our chocolate in foreign places where the chocolate is growing, the cacao is growing, their condition is so horrible that they haven't even tasted chocolate. They don't even have the opportunity to enjoy chocolate. And the media, to try to, to, try to win up sympathy, to drum up sympathy, somewhat appropriately, okay, they're, they're building on this, this idea working on this assumption that, that, there ought, that we all think that there are some things that are just so good <laughs> that it would be a crime to withhold it from people, in this case, chocolate, okay? That it, their condition is so bad that they, wouldn't, that they are so close to chocolate, but they have not had the privilege of being able to enjoy it. And that is a crime, was, was, the, was the idea behind their reporting, Okay? Now, I'm just going to jump from that then to this idea then that now we see a God that is good and as great as he is, who has no comparison to anything else. It would be an absolute crime to keep that news to ourselves. It should be a disappointment and a frustration 
to recognize the travesty that there are still yet people that do not know. And, and I would think to you, for us here, wherever we are, there's still people that do not think of God as good and as great right down the street. My, my, my application is not to say everybody ought to be going off to Africa, but what we do here when we're celebrating when we're worshiping, when we're giving thanks and praise to God, ought to remind us the fact that there's other people outside these walls who just don't know how good and how great and how wonderful he is. And so that when we leave and we go see them face to face, we ought to be thinking, I know somebody that you ought to know. And more so because we know that there is a day that is coming as it says, where he is coming in judgment. For those that know him, we bow down and worship here now and for all of eternity. To those that do not know him, this text is calling us and calling the whole world to bow down, to give him the worship that he alone deserves. And for us that know him, to take that news so that the nations, so that all the world may give him the praise that he deserves. What we do here ought to drive us out. It ought to push us forward to know that everything that is happening in our life and everything that is happening on this world is moving towards that point. It's moving towards that end where there'll be a mass of people from every tribe and tongue and kindred on this planet that will bow down before him. We all know people here. We know people by name in other countries throughout the world that do not yet know him. May he use meetings like this to propel us forward as the fuel for moving forward, for he is worthy of it. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this church, for its many years of faithfulness that by your grace you have enabled people to come to hear the gospel, to hear the good news, and to come to saving faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. I thank you that through relationships with this church that many more in other places have come to saving faith in the gospel so that they may stand before you and worship you as you deserve for all of eternity. I thank you most of all for your Son, Jesus Christ, who set aside his glory in heaven to come to earth, to suffer and die on our behalf, to raise again. Because he rose again, you have proven your commitment to judge the earth in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we may all anticipate that day with reverent fear and joy, with a good work ethic and hope that you will do as you please. We ask these things all in the name of your Son, Jesus our Lord. Amen.